Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. Before we kick off the show, I just wanted to take a moment to remind you that the ICC Men's Cricket T20 World Cup Final is taking place in Barbados this summer. This, by default, gives all of my fellow cricket fanatics the perfect excuse to go and book a holiday to Barbados in June and experience firsthand the euphoric atmosphere at the Kensington Oval, the cricket mecca of the Caribbean. If the cricket alone isn't enough to tempt you, then let me be the one to remind you that a trip to Barbados can also include leisurely strolls along the breathtaking coastline, mouth-watering flavours of the world-class Bayesian cuisine, and, of course, plenty of rum. Head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today to book the trip of a lifetime to Barbados, the best place to be a cricket fan. Welcome to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2. I'm your host this week, Neil Manthorpe, and we'll be bringing you an exclusive interview with a man who's played over 100 test matches for his country and a man who has a Cricket World Cup winner's medal. And that'll do very nicely for Gary Kirsten. A bit of history for him. This is his 10th test match 100. My guest this week on the Cricket Collective is the former South African batsman, Gary Kirsten. You're listening to the Cricket Collective on Talksport 2. Well, at the age of 21, Gary Kirsten hadn't given any serious thought to being a professional cricketer, but just a couple of years later, he was opening the batting for his country at the Boxing Day Test match at the MCG in 1993. He went on to score over 7,000 test runs and almost as many in ODIs before a distinguished coaching career during which he has, so far, won the World Cup in charge of India and taken his native South Africa to the number one test ranking. Gary Kirsten, welcome to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2. It's uh, very good of you to make time. How's, uh, how's life been in lockdown for you? Yeah, it's been, it's been interesting. Thanks, Neil. It's great to be chatting to you again. It's been a while, but um, yeah, it's been, it's been interesting. I think I've actually worked quite hard, funny enough. Maybe, maybe the, the idea of having three kids and picking them up from school and going to watch sporting matches and doing all that kind of deflected from actually sitting in an office and banging out six or seven hours of work. So um, it's been good. I've learned a lot, put it that way. I was, I'm a 53-year-old who wasn't that tech savvy, but I think I've increased by 15, 20% in the last uh, couple of months. I want to rewind. So 16 years after retirement, <laughs> and I'll never, ever forget your last day of <laughs> test cricket in Wellington in New Zealand. But um, when you look back now, 16 years later, does the, the thought of 101 test matches and 21 test centuries, 7,200 runs at an average of 45.3, does that still make you smile? Because 16 years ago, you said, 
it hasn't really sunk in. Maybe it is a few years, maybe it will a few years into retirement. Yeah, I think it did, you know. Um, I didn't even think I'd play one test match. So to, to end up having, having achieved that, I think, uh, does, does make me smile. I think, um, I think the fact that I was never dropped from a, from a test match team um, over, over 11 years was, is, is also, for me, quite a big thing. Because I didn't think I was that good a player, to be honest with you. But uh, <laughs> to kind of stick it out for that long and they still felt that I was adding value, um, yeah, it was great to to have walked a walked a journey as a cricket player at the highest level of the game. When, to be honest with you, there were many times I didn't even think I'd play the game professionally. How did it happen then? You you were you you were you were an off spinner who batted at number eight when you played for the University of Cape Town. So, and, and you're part of the Kirsten dynasty, of course, which it is a dynasty, but. How how did it happen then? How did you suddenly go from an enthusiastic club cricketer who who enjoyed the uh, apres match as much as as much as playing? How, how did you suddenly turn yourself into a into a Test cricketer? Yeah, Neil, I think I think along the way we all need, um, or we can all reflect back and and say those were critical moments in our life. And I think you know, as you mentioned, I was part of a family that loved the game of cricket from the moment I could walk. So cricket was very much part of our DNA. And I remember many conversations I had with Western Province players at the time. And there was one thing that I kept hearing, kept hearing. And that was, if you want to become a frontline batsman, there's only one currency that, that, that makes any sense. And that's how do you get to 100? So from a very young age, I, I kind of had this in, in, my, in my DNA to learn how to score 100. And my first 100 came when I was a 13-year-old um, at Ronnebosch School. And it was, it, it was almost like I'd scored that 100 and you've now arrived in, in, in the batting realms. You now will be recognized as someone that can maybe go on and, and make a career out of batting. So that was very important for me through my time with my family and, and the kind of friends around us in understanding that. I think the next um, real big strong intervention was having Duncan Fletcher as a coach at UCT because I was. By the time I'd left school... My father passed away when I was 17. I was kind of a little bit all over the place, to be honest with you. And um, it's, it can be a very dangerous time for a young guy when he's got more independence and freedom to go do his thing. And I don't think I was particularly motivated or, or directed in any way to pursuing anything. Um, and, and Duncan just happened to come into my life as the UCT coach, and he really became a father figure to me. You know, he he kind of gave me that direction that I, that I needed. He knew that I could play and that I could maybe go on and potentially play professionally. But I think I de desperately at that point needed some direction. Robin Jackman was coach at Western Province, wasn't he? Um, and uh, an opening appeared at the top of the order and you hadn't opened. I'm testing my memory now. You hadn't opened before and, uh, and, and Robin Jackman said, there's a spot at the top of the order. Do you want it? That's how I recall it. Yeah, absolutely spot on. I was 12th man in a game. We were up in Joburg and uh, I was kind of in and out the team, you know, batting at five and six and not really doing anything significant. And he, it was, he said to me, just literally out of the blue, he said, have you ever thought about opening the batting? And I'd never had. I thought I wasn't good at you know, a new ball. I mean, that's crazy. Like, it's hard enough and six, you know. Um, 
but, but when I reflected on what he said, he was basically saying to me, if you say yes, you're prepared to give it a bash, I might give you an opportunity. So I thought, yeah, well, I've got to take it. You know, I might not never have, a, have another go at playing for Western Province at that time in first-class cricket. And I was in the A side and then in the B side and kind of just hovering around there. So I thought I'd go for it, you know, which, which, which meant a real mind, mindset shift to say, I'm now going to become a new ball batsman. And what are the kind of things that I need to do differently? And I got a quick uh, 101 tutorial from, I think, Lawrence Seif, who was the opening batsman at uh, Western Province at the time, to say, well, by the way, that shot that you think you can play, you can't do that with a new ball um, because you're going to nick off, you know. So, <laughs> And he taught me how to duck against the short ball as well because he said you're going to get a lot of that. And um, I, built, I built a very quickly, I kind of built this kind of opening batsman game plan. Literally in the space of weeks, because it was just a turnaround. I suddenly, my next net I went into, uh, uh, Jack has said to me, you go open the batting. And I'm facing new balls in the net with Craig Matthews and these guys, and they're fairly accomplished bowlers, and they were eating me alive. But I started to learn how to leave balls, you know, and suddenly it was a bit more difficult to get me out. Um, and I went with it in, into the first match with a little bit more confidence than what I'd had in the previous nets before, only because I kind of built... I guess, an opening batsman's game plan. And almost instantly, I did well. In the first, first match as an opening batsman, I got not too many runs in the first innings, and I got 80-odd in the second innings against a fairly good attack uh, from Natal. In fact, it was Mary Pringle's first game for Western Province as well, and he got a whole lot of wickets. Uh, and for me, that was almost kind of my, uh, my, my rebirth into professional cricket, that I could actually make it at this level. In your second test match... I recall Alan Border doing something quite mean-spirited. I think he put two gullies and two backward points. Uh, he set this field, which was as much to say to you how limited he thought you were. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, do you recall that? He wasn't the only one who did that. There were many who got very frustrated with me. But I hadn't... It, it, actually, used to, it, it actually used to motivate me because I would say to them, you're absolutely right by putting all those fielders there, but I'm going to still hit it through them <laughs> and between them. <laughs> um, uh, I, always say to people, I always say to people, you know, that was my strength and my weakness, but um, you, you're never going to stop me from, from trying to hit the ball down there. One of my other favourite memories is, is Lords 94. I mean, it was, a, it was an incredible tour. I mean, it was a throwback to a different era because South Africa were in England for three months and only played three test matches you know you went around everywhere I remember you scoring a hundred against Durham and and then finally we got to the first test match at Lords and you walked out to open the batting with Andrew Hudson didn't you go down one flight of stairs too many you almost <laughs> couldn't find the field and that's an absolutely true story we went down two flights of stairs instead of one and ended up in a cleaning cupboard and I said to Hudders, I was ahead of him, and I said to Hudders, boss, we're not going the right way. Yeah, we're going to have to turn around and go back the way we came, you know. It was very, very funny, but it was actually, actually a true story. It was surreal walking through that long room when we eventually got there and just kind of having, I don't know, two, three hundred people giving us a standing ovation when I'm on naught <laughs> and walking out onto the field. <laughs> I thought, imagine if I get runs there, what's going to happen when I walk back in? <laughs> so it was, a, it was an amazing, amazing occasion. 
it was a, without a doubt one of my one of my highlights playing at Lords. I was very fortunate to have three Test matches there, and just an absolute absolute highlight playing cricket there. And of course, you are on the honours board. You got on the honours board in two thousand and three with an innings of one hundred and eight, something that Sachin Tendulkar hasn't managed to do, and quite a few other luminaries in the batting world. Yeah, it was one of those things. I, I always kind of I think for any visitor, you want to get your name on that board and. It was a bit inconsequential, my 108, because Graham Smith was getting 270 at the time um, on the other side. But it was it was a good personal milestone for me, that was for sure. And and I and I had my struggles in that innings because uh, the day before, Hamilton really worked me over on the short ball, and I kind of I kind of battled. You know, I really almost I almost felt like, geez, I think I'm too old for this. You know, I'm I'm not seeing the ball, and uh, it took a lot of uh, um, personal mentoring to go out the next day and, and get myself into a position where I could score 100. And back to the 94 tour, um, Peter, you know, at the age of 38, Peter Kirsten scored a, a very, very fine and brave 100 at Headingley against Darren Goff in Fading Light. That was another very special, special uh, memory. And, and I confess, uh, Peter had uh, a couple of beers to celebrate uh, afterwards, and he he was he was with me and a couple of other journalists, and he said, "My days are numbered, but you look out for my little butt. You look out for Gary. He's going to be a great." And and the confession is, I wasn't convinced. <laughs> well, why would anyone have been convinced? I wasn't either. <laughs> but you know what? It's an amazing thing. Like I've often had the conversation with uh, Gautam Gambier around it, who who. Had to, had to prove people wrong about, you know, his game that he had and, and could he play it at the highest level. I remember we obviously talk into that space a little bit later, but um, I think for me it was very much a similar journey where, you know, I spent a lot of time proving people wrong because no one thought that I could really play at the game. I certainly wouldn't consider myself a great, but I would, um, I was very determined to prove to people that I belonged here. Very determined. So... As I said, you know, I learned from a very young age that you're only going to get recognised if you score hundreds. So, you know, I love the idea of being able to to go out and score a hundred, even if it looked ugly and horrible. It was just for me. It was, it was all I knew. It was it was just part of my DNA, as I said earlier. And he's home. And up goes Kirsten's back because that's two hundred. A double century, he's delighted. He set off, I'm sure, only for two runs. And then they saw the possibility of the third and... Jubilation for Gary Kirsten. Really has been the, the rock on which this innings has been built. Do you wish you'd been able to play county cricket? Obviously, Peter played a dozen or so years and, and is a, a Derbyshire icon, but you, but you never never got a county gig. Is that something you, you, you regret or? No, you I don't. Um, I, I, got a, I got an offer after that tour actually to England. Well, I'm sorry, not after that tour. After my last tour, I got the 100 at Lords. Um, I think it was 2003. I was at the back end of my career and I got offered a contract by Sussex. And to be honest with you, by then I was kind of, I don't know if I can do this, you know, just go and pan out a whole county career. So I turned down the offer. So never, never ended up playing county cricket. Do I regret it? I think, I think there was, there were, there's some things that I would have loved to have experienced. 
I generally played pretty well in England on the tours that I went there. So, you know, for me, it might have been a nice progression of having had some success as an international player there. One of those successes was the 210 you scored in the the Old Trafford Test match in, in, in the 98 series against England. It was a particularly heated, heated series. Um, yeah. But I, I, um, I, you can comment on that, but I, I, you were particularly disparaging after your, your double hundred. You came to the press conference and said, oh, I bet you thought it was impossible to score an ugly double hundred, but there you go. <laughs> well, I spend a lot of time having those conversations with the media and, and other people, you know, because it was never really that pretty. I mean, I did have some innings as where I hit the ball really well. I remember 100 at Adelaide. I got 110 not out of Adelaide where and batted very quickly. You might have remembered that. Where probably for me, if someone had said, which was your most fluent 100? Probably that one, to be honest with you. I just hit the ball well. Um, it felt good. I took on Warren, which, I, which is not an easy thing to do. But yeah, I think a lot of my innings is, and that one um, at Manchester was one of those. It took a long time. But in many ways, I kind of felt, I was always, I was always comfortable in my role. You know, like that was the team. The team always used to... Um, enjoy what I did for the team. So I always got um, buy-in from, in my ways, with, with, with a lot of the team guys. Hansi was a, was a good leader for me in that space. He used to really honor, honor my performances. But it, often it wasn't pretty. It never, often never looked good. And I, I was never ashamed by that. It was just like, this is how I can score runs. You know, yes, the, when I reflect back on my career now, were there things I would have done differently? I think I would have, you know. But, you know, I was, I, I was coached in a way to you work out how to score runs and go do it rather than you work out how to play different shots and grow your game and develop your game and then you will score runs because of it. So I kind of went down that route. It was a, was a more conservative, a little bit more boring, but I, I worked out how to score runs. That 98 uh, series was described by Michael Atherton as the most mean-spirited one in which he was involved in his uh, hundred-plus test matches. Um, how, do, how did you? Um, what, what did you do? You always gave the impression that you just sort of ignored it when you were on the field, uh, rather than get stuck in or, or try and calm things down. You, you just sort of you took a rather paternal view and you know, let let the boys get on with it if that's what if that's what <laughs> floats their boat. Yeah, I was like that all through my career. You know. Um, I always felt that, um, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna get into opposition verbally, then you've got to expect it to come back at you. And I liked silence when I batted. I didn't like too much verbal, to be honest with you. So I try to get in my bubble where people used to get irritated because they think that they weren't getting under my skin. A lot of time they were, but I wouldn't let them know. So yeah, I was just never. Yeah, it was very heated. It was it was just one of those events. It was a, it was a. You know, it was a perfect storm in many ways. There were just two very competitive teams. One thought they could beat the other. One desperate to beat South Africa in England. And we, we were obviously desperate to win a series there as well. And some, some incredible events that happened in that series um, with some high-quality cricketers, you know. And they, emotions boiled over. It can happen. But my, my view on it is at the highest level of the game, that's great entertainment. But I'll never, I'll never forget the greatest umpire that I ever had the privilege of being on a field with a guy by the name of David Shepard. And the reason why, for me, he was such a good umpire is that he upheld the values of the game while he was officiating a match. And um, 
I never forget a game at Lords where Alan got a bit heated because of, of a decision that didn't go his way. And he started to get very, very chirpy with the, the batsman. And I remember uh, David Shepard kind of walking with him as he was chirping the batsman. And like at the moment that it was going to get out of hand and Alan Donald was going to get a fine, he would kind of stop the whole process and move Alan out the way and say, go back to your mark. This is my field. You, you behave yourself. And I just loved the way he did it. He, he allowed it to get to a point, but then he, he kind of pulled it apart. And I think some of those heated exchanges probably required a bit of that, you know, where, okay, let's have the entertainment for a while, but then it's got to, you know, it's kind of got to, got to stop. Maybe, or maybe not. Maybe people love the entertainment to the, to the end, I suppose. But I never used to get too much involved. No. So it's over for Gary Kirsten. 14 hours and 39 minutes. Every single England player shaking hands with Kirsten. A quite marvellous effort from him. 275 for Gary Kirsten. 18 months after that, England uh, went to South Africa and you, you were right on the brink you were of being dropped for, for the one and only time. And it probably would have been <laughs> the last time had you been dropped. Um, you, you, you'd done well to last that long. Yeah. Um, and then, and then uh, so we get to Durban and England batted for an age until after tea on the second day. Mate, yeah, 366 one, for nine. 100. And, and I think, I don't know what, what over, overcame South Africa, but it was a boredom probably. They were bowled out for 156. So yeah. then you have to bat two days and, and, a, and a session in the follow-on yeah. innings. So you walk out to bat in the follow-on innings, basically thinking that it, it's almost certainly going to be your last innings of your, yeah. of your career. And you yeah. bat 14 and a half hours and make 275. <laughs> yeah, bizarre, isn't it? But uh, yeah, I think, I think, I think often what's, what happens to batsmen in that space, and it's, I just wish I was in it more, where you don't care, you know? And it's, it's a weird thing to say, but I didn't care. This is going to go bat. Like, you do, it's, it's a weird thing to say, don't care, but do care. Like, I, I, I was caring enough that if I was going to get in, I was going to make it count. But not caring enough that if I got out early, so what? If that makes sense. That's the mindset that I was in. So the journey of that innings was I was nowhere mentally and didn't expect to get any runs. But I did have in the back of my mind that probably subconsciously that um, if I got in and started to build, it, uh, build the innings, that I wasn't going to give it away. That's for sure. So I think that's what happened in that innings. I kind of got... I got to 30. I hit a couple of nice shots early doors, which I hadn't done for months. I remember hitting a back foot drive off Andrew Caddick, who had a great series. I never played a back foot drive in my life. <laughs> and I hit this back foot drive, and I look at my bat, and there's a big red mark in the middle of my bat. And I thought, well, that's about right, because I haven't hit one in the middle of the bat for the last couple of months. So no wonder there's a mark there. <laughs> and uh, then I got, I got it lucky. I, I, I remember going... Uh, back to delivery from Flintoff and it hit the shoulder of the bat and often that just loops up to slip but it went straight over, just over second slip's head. And I got lucky, but I managed to stay in. Um, and, you know, you grow in confidence as you go along. So I got to 30 and then I got to 60, 70. And by the time I'd got there and I knew that I'd made a contribution and probably I'd, 
probably I'm going to get another gig in this team, the next test match. I really started to get motivated about number one, saving the test match, which is something I've always wanted to do is to be able to really save a big test match for my country. And then number two, um, I've always wanted to get a massive hundred. So the, the situation for me and the way I played, which is not the most exhilarating, was perfectly set up. Set up to save a test match, to bat for a huge amount of time, and, and then obviously to save my career you know, through that process. But I became, as that innings unfolded, I became very determined to get to the next goal and, and, and the next goal. What was the physical process like? Because I... I mean, you, you, you looked like a man who had just run an ultra marathon. I don't know how much body fluid and weight you lost, but 14 and a half hours. I mean, there must have been periods where you were fighting off almost delirium. Yeah, there were. And I mean, I, it was great to have... Uh, I actually I got weak in there. I mean, I lost 5Ks over that time. I started to get weak at the end. I mean, I wasn't a big, strong hit of the ball anyway. So I literally was battling to even get the ball to the boundary. And I remember guys like uh, Bouch came in and put on a big partnership with me. Um, and it was great having him there because he gave us a bit of momentum in the innings. I mean, I said to him, listen, I'll stick around, but you're not going to get much out of me. And he just said, okay, I'm going to take it on. And he played a really aggressive innings and ended up making me look so good because I was at the other end and we put on a heap of runs. Um, but I just, yeah, for me at that point, I felt confident enough that I could bat through the time, but not scoring overly quickly. But then that wasn't the priority then. You know, we just had to bat. In fact, that, that particular match, I think, really set up our next test match. Because by the time England were bowling again, they were so blown from that journey, from that experience that we, we kind of, that the Newlands test match, it felt, I felt batting was, I mean, I got 80 in the, I think it was in the first innings, I think I should have got 100 there, got out the next morning. But I was feeling really comfortable batting and, and the bowlers were blown. I'm going to skip through a couple more highlights because I want to get on to the, the coaching. But there was the, the 188 at the uh, 96 World Cup against the UAE, which wasn't that the, I, was it the second highest ODI score at the time? I can't remember. <laughs> I think it was. It probably was the second. I think there was a. I think it was someone who got a hundred. Uh, was Syed Anwar or something. I got hundred and ninety. I think. Yeah, and and I mean, it was a very fine innings. But you ended up getting fined after it. <laughs> yeah, can you? Believe what was that, that all that? about? Well, it was the bandana, wasn't it? It was wearing the South African flag bandana, which was suggested to me by one of the guys, and uh, I think we were throwing it around in the room and just saying, who's going to wear it? And I said, I'll wear it, <laughs> not thinking too much about it. So I put it on, and um, very quickly I was wearing a cap, actually, which you don't often see in the game today. But um, the, there was no one in the UAE bowling attack that, that uh, I felt overly threatened by. So I put a cap on with the bandana underneath the cap. And I mean, it was, and then obviously reaching the milestones and kind of lifting the cap and, and there was the bandana, which wasn't allowed because it didn't fit in with the, I don't know, the protocol and of the World Cup. And uh, I didn't even know. I thought wearing your, your flag as a bandana wouldn't be an issue, but it, but it was <laughs> to the powers. That Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. If your passion for travel is on par with your passion for cricket, then I have some excellent news. The ICC Men's Cricket T20 World Cup Final is being hosted in Barbados this June, which makes it the perfect destination for your summer holidays this year. To make the most of your trip, you can also experience eight matches from the series in Barbados, including England against Scotland and England against Australia. In under a month's time, you could be spending your days exploring the vibrant streets of Bridgetown, drinking rum in the sunshine and experiencing exotic Bayesian delicacies in the culinary capital of the Caribbean. There truly is something for everyone. There's no need to wait a second longer. Head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today to book the trip of a lifetime to Barbados. Truly the best place to be a cricket fan. Be. There it is. They go. This will be out, surely. Ah, it's out. It's going to be one out. Oh, that's it. South Africa out. Donald didn't run. I cannot believe it. Australia go into the World Cup final. Ridiculous running with two balls to go. Donald didn't go. Klusner come. What a disappointing end for South Africa. A couple of weeks ago, we had Alan Donald here on um, the Cricket Collective. And uh, he, he spoke still quite movingly about the 99 World Cup. Um, he, he said, you know, he, there were many times that he thought he was over it. And they went on for years and years and years, talking about the tie against Australia, which, uh, which led to South Africa's elimination. But every time Alan Donald and the fateful run out, every time he thought he was over it, it uh, they would come back to haunt him again. I recall you, you weren't married to, to Deborah then, but you were engaged. I, I recall you going off to Paris for a, a holiday. That must have been a, as bad, as good an escape as you could have hoped for. Yeah, I very quickly got over that when you're walking around the streets of Paris with your, with your fiancé. And yeah, I mean, you know, for me, that, was, that, that experience was, was bittersweet as well. In fact, I think the older I've got, the more I've reflected on it because I often reflect back and think, you know, what could we as a team um, have done um, mentally more than anything to overcome that? What were the learnings that I take through my coaching journey that would have been able to help that situation? And we've been dealing with it a lot in South Africa. You know, um, that, was a, that was kind of the start of us getting recognized as a team that choked in, in these World Cup events. And um, it was a game we should have won and we didn't win. In fact, I reflect back to the game before that against Australia when... Herschel Gibbs got 100 and we 
I think we got 270 and they, and they, and they chased that score down. I always, I always felt that we were like, like other than Australia, we were kind of really good against other teams. You know, we, we didn't have this, this inferiority against other teams, but when we played Australia at that time, it was like this inferiority. It was their great team, but so were we a good team, but we definitely felt one below them. And, and in, Often in those real high-pressure games and moments, I think we backed ourselves enough, you know, that we could have gone across the line. I mean, I heard Steve Waugh the other day mention around that 99 game semi-final, and it was so right. He said, you know, we were making as, as many mistakes as South Africa were making at, at the end of that game. But one team supposedly panicked le less, but we were both panicking. Look at, back at the last four overs, and you'll see how many mistakes we made. So it was kind of it was kind of one of one of those ones. So what does just get one team over the line and and the other team not? You know, Lance Klusner had an incredible World Cup, and you would have thought he was getting us over the line. You know, but the bottom line is we lost nine. You know, we by the time Alan Donald had got to the crease, we still needed to get to two eleven, and we really lost nine wickets. That should never have happened. Even though the Shane Warne, you know, who's a who's a match winner of the highest degree you know, could have done what he had, had done. It was almost like just a bit of sense and a bit of, just have a bit of sense around it and you'll, and you'll be okay. It was bizarre in many ways. When I reflect back, I just think of the way I got out in that game. You know, I decided that uh, Shane Warne bowled out Gibbs with a beautiful leg spinner and it was a bit of hype and, and he created some good drama. And I kind of thought as the left-hander, you know, maybe I need to take him on because I'm the left-hander in the team. And someone needs to show some form of authority against him. So I try to take on a slog sweep and miss the ball and it hit off stump. And for me, I kind of reflected back on that and thought, could I have done something different? Anyway. Anyway, yeah. I, 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 <laughs> I must say, Damien Fleming bowled the last over and he reckons that he got one out of six balls in the right place. He, he says that everybody was choking. There was a drop. There was Darren Lehman's missed run out. I think it's fair to say that any... Objective analysis of that would say would would suggest that both teams were choking as much as each other. Anyway, moving on to the India job, Gary. So you know, remarkable transition from an off-spinning lower order batsman to an opening batsman, but nothing nothing like as remarkable uh, as a man who's done a couple of freelance consultancy coaching gigs at domestic level, um, then being appointed on that basis, to the biggest job in cricket as coach of the Indian national team. I mean, you, you can't make that up. Yeah, well, you know the story to that to, through the interview process and everything. I don't know if you want me to share that. But, uh, Do, please, give us, the, uh, uh, give us the, the shortened version. The shortened version. Well, anyway, I got, uh, I got an email from Sunil Gavaskar. Would I consider coaching the Indian team? I, I thought it was a hoax. I never even answered. He sent me another email and, uh, and then he said, will you come for an interview? I showed this to my wife. She said they must have the wrong person. So it was kind of a, just a bizarre <laughs> entry into the whole thing, rightly so. I mean, I had no coaching experience or anything. Anyway, I went for the interview. It was a, a bizarre experience in many ways because um, um, I kind of arrived at, at the at the interview and I see Anil Kumble, who is the current Indian captain. And he says, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I've come for an interview to coach you. So we kind of laugh about it. You know, it was quite a laughing matter. And 
10 minutes later, I'm in this board meeting with these BCCR officials. It was quite an intimidating environment. And they, uh, this, the, the secretary of the board says, Mr. Kirsten, will you present your vision for Indian cricket? And I said, well, I don't have one. No one had asked me to prepare anything. I just arrived there. And, and then Ravi Shastri was on the committee, said to me, uh, so Gary, well, what, tell us, what did you guys as a South African team do to beat the Indians? And I thought it was a great icebreaker because I could answer it. And I answered it in about two, three minutes with our same kind of strategies that we probably use to this day. And he was suitably impressed, as was the rest of the board, because three minutes later, I'd been in the interview about seven minutes, the, the secretary of the board slides across a contract to, to me and I kind of look, pick up the contract and the first page, I'm looking for my name frantically and I, kind of, I can't see my name, but I see Greg Chappell's name, who was the previous coach, as you know. So I slide the contract back and I say, uh, sir, I think, you've, I think you've given me your previous coach's contract. And he kind of looks at it um, a little bit perturbed and it takes out a pen out of his pocket, scratches out his name and writes my name on it, you see. <laughs> so it slides the contract back. So now I've got my name on a contract. The beautiful thing about that was I, wasn't, I didn't have a clue what I thought I should be paid. But then obviously... You know, with Greg Chappell's package there, I just thought, well, let me just keep it the same. <laughs> I'm happy with what he was getting paid. <laughs> and uh, then, anyway, and then, yeah, and so then, I signed, I signed. that was it. But Tendulkar is a good enough player to hit it through straight mid on. And that is a magnificent century from uh, Sachin Tendulkar. He overtakes Don Bradman now. And there's just one gentleman sitting beside me who's got to catch up now. I, I recall before you before you took up the post, you said, um, I wouldn't say you were worried about it, because, I mean, you played 101 test matches and you're a figure of international respect in the game. But, um, but you were perplexed would probably be uh, a better word than intimidated about how you were going to coach Sachin Tendulkar. And he wasn't the only great, but I mean, and then, and then, so you just asked him, didn't you? When you arrived, you said to Sachin, what would you like me to do? And he said, be yeah. my friend. Yeah. As simple as that. But end, end up having a great coaching journey with him because, um, and that for me is, is kind of where the essence of coaching is now, I think, or certainly modern coaching. You're actually facilitating people's, ability to be the best version of themselves and and that's if i think of sachin at that time where was he when i arrived in india he was he wanted to give up the game according to him he was batting out of position um he wasn't enjoying his cricket at, at all and then three years later he scores 18 international hundreds in three years goes back to batting where he wants to bat and we win the world cup so for me, that all I did was facilitate an environment for him to thrive. I didn't tell him anything. I didn't have to, he knew the game. But what he did need was an environment, not only him, all of them, was an environment set up where they could be the best version of themselves. So I think that my, my point was more around, did my personality and my potential style that they saw in me as a player, would it work for the Indians? And I think it was a masterstroke in many ways. Not, no one knew. Um, but I think the Indian players who were senior players, a lot of them good players coming towards the end of their careers, but also had great careers, were probably looking for someone like me.
I don't think I would have worked as well as a coach if I was working with a bunch of, you know, the, uh, you know, the Vera Coley's and the guys that were coming through as young players. That might have been a tougher journey for me. But I think I've always worked better with senior players because I've always used myself as a senior player um, in, in test match cricket as a reference point. What would I have wanted for me to thrive? You know, and at the end of my career, I've, that's why I've always respected Eric Simons as a coach because at the end of my career, as you know, I had a great end to my test career, but I, f- I felt the environment was well set up for me to thrive. The, the South Africa job, becoming the number one test side in the world in 2012 on another fabulous tour of England and a really, really closely wow. hard-fought uh, series. Um, I mean, that's, that, that was a terrific, terrific highlight again for, for you. Um, yeah. A year after that, though, the Champions Trophy, again in England, yes. when South Africa played brilliantly and then got to the semi-final at the Oval against England, everything set up, beautiful sunny day, and before you knew it, South Africa was 70 for eight. And you mentioned about the choking uh, reputation of the one-day side, and you actually said after that game, you were asked the question directly, do you think the team choked? And you paused momentarily, gave it due thought, and said, yes, I do. Yeah, so one or two players did approach me about that afterwards. Um, but, I, you know, I, I mean, it didn't take a fool to, to see what was going on. And I've always maintained, and certainly my journey with the one-day team, um, less around the test team. You know, our test journey was, was, uh, was very different to the one-day journey. Certainly my two years that I had with the team, we were, we were really focused on becoming the number one test team in the world. The team was set up for that. The one-day journey was slightly different. We were bringing in a lot of young players at the time. We were still four, well, at that point now, two years away from a World Cup after the Champions Trophy. And, and my, one, of, one of the things that I wanted to focus on in the one-day team was around big events. And I wanted us to be real as people and as brutally honest as we could with each other around the history of, of these big events and how we could over, overcome them. So we actually, um, prior to that semi-final, actually were, spoke into that space. And um, we're, we're very kind of open and direct about the challenges that we had when we got to these big games and how we played to the point where, we've, where you know, I, I stood up and I, and I said to the team, you know, until we actually acknowledge that we actually are choking in these games, we're not going to move forward as a group. And it was met with uh, not, not, uh, uh, not resistance in a tangible way, but more I could see there was resistance. People were, people were scared to go there, you know. Rather, no, it's not, it's not an issue. We move on and let's, and let's play, play the game as we need to and play it in the moment. And I've, I've always been of the school of thought, until you actually address the elephant in the room, um, it's going to stay there. You know? and, and so we, with the help of Paddy, kind of try to go down a bit of a journey, but we never got... We never got enough legs on it to, to really make some good progress through it. So I think it still needs to be done, to be honest with you. And uh, he bowled a four-over spell initially. He's around the wicket now, as he loves doing to left-handers. Oh, goodness me, that is a nasty one. Wow, that is hit him. That is uh, very, very nice today. Shobak goes down there very quickly. Mohan Khan is there as well. They're asking for the change room, and that is not great. That is horrible for Gary Kirsten. Talking about addressing elephants in the room, another example that you that you've used during your coaching career is um, 
admitting that there is fear against a short ball, particularly when it's bowled by Shoaib Akhtar. <laughs> <laughs> and and once you once you addressed the fact that there was fear there, it was okay. Uh, you know, yeah. it's okay. It's normal to be normal to yeah. have a bit of fear. And we perceive we perceived as these these batsmen are perceived as these tough guys that can handle anything. And you're not allowed to say anything, and you're not allowed to say you struggle with this and struggle with that, and you're never vulnerable. And and then you can suddenly, when you start to say it, it actually makes life a lot easier because you get it out of your system first of all. You acknowledge that it's something that does exist, but you learn to live with it and you manage it. And the moment I kind of freed myself up to manage that, I, I felt I played much better in my career actually. But I was always trying to fight it. I needed to look good against the short ball. So people would look at me and say, this guy's the complete package. But I knew I wasn't the complete package. So who cares whether I played the short ball or not? At the end of the day, if I'm scoring runs and doing well, that's all that should count. And actually, it's funny. The, the more I opened myself to that, the better relationships I had with, uh, with players around the world because they kind of acknowledge it. I mean, Shia Bakhtar and I are good friends, actually. We, we often laugh about that. He was... He was he was more scared than I was. He was flipping. If, if I've, if I've, you know, he, he was worried that he, like I'd lost my eye or something. And he was like it. I mean, if you see in that video footage, he was brilliant the way he came down just to check up on me. That evening he phoned and said, are you okay? Can I come around and just say, how's it? And then the next innings, when I went out to bat with half an eye, the first ball he, he bowled me was the fastest Yorker I've ever faced. And then he bowled me the standard bouncer. And then he tore his hamstring and I never faced him again. It was the most awesome time of my life. <laughs> I don't think you've ever actually applied for a coaching position. You've, you've always been asked uh, to, to um, well, I don't know if you actually ever filled in an application form. You've always been invited to, to attend an, an interview or, or whatever, a presentation. And the same happened with England. Um, again, um, Ashley Giles asked you, to come over to Lords and I don't know what words he used, but basically come for an interview or, you know, we're, we're keen to, to talk to you about becoming the England coach. And then the, there seemed to be some cross wires when you got there. <laughs> there were, it was a, a very weird process. I was actually, I couldn't get my head around this England job. I mean, it, you know, it's very prestigious to be offered a job of that nature. And I discussed it with Debs, my wife a lot. And, uh, you know, we said, well, hold on, we've just got out of this space for five years, six years, and, I, you know, and we've really enjoyed it. And it, it is a tough journey as an international coach. But then we kind of justified it by saying, well, our kids are older now and, you know, maybe, maybe it's a, it would be a great opportunity for our middle son, James, to move into high school there. So there was a lot of things that we thought about and justified that it would be worth going to, you know. So when I kind of left the shores of South Africa, I kind of, in my head, had this, I'm, I'm, I'm going for a token interview. They actually want to give me the job, you know. But then in the interview, I was really honest. You know, I just, I just uh, presented, a not a vision, I presented what I saw from the outside. And I said, well, it's very difficult for me to give you a, a vision without knowing the team or knowing the players. But I, this is what I see from the outside and how I could potentially add value. Yeah, and then I, I asked, I told them that, you know, there's a couple of challenges with my family, obviously, and we're gonna to have to navigate that and work it out. And I've always been an advocate as a coach for having different coaches for different formats, only because I think coaches are under the pump, because coaches are much younger these days, that they're under the pump with their families. So it's not an easy 
way to navigate through, you know, these long international seasons. So I've always been an ad advocate for that. But, but obviously the England set up, they wanted me, you know, to do the whole lot and then to, and then to give, you know, buy me some periods of time where I could come home and be with the family. So that kind of, you know, I thought, well, maybe we can go, we can go down that road. Anyway, I thought the interview went really well um, in terms of uh, my honesty in the situation and what I felt I could add. Um, and then Ashley phoned me the next day and we had another chat and, and that was it. And, they, and, and then obviously they gave Chris the job. I think Chris was, was a very um, strong candidate as well. That's why it was the two of us. I didn't realize that they, they'd kind of thought they were thinking of him very seriously. So I actually think it was the other way. I thought actually they wanted Chris to do the job, but they thought if I arrived and I was convincing enough, they might have offered it to me. But I was thinking they were going to offer me the job. Um, so that that's cool. That's cool. I I think it's probably it, it was probably not a bad thing that I didn't get the job anyway because uh, you know it's always nice to be offered it. But I think uh, Chris is probably well suited to the role, and he seems to be doing a great job with the team now. Talking of another lot, uh, well. A lost opportunity. Um, the postponement of the hundred. I know that you were very excited about that as head coach of Welsh Fire. Um, that that it, entirely different. I mean, you you're a big relationships man. You 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 know you're, you 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 often said you you can't make a big difference over a short period of time. Yeah. Um, but but you've coached um, in the Big Bash and you know and also in South Africa, South Africa's Mzansi Super League. It's a completely different challenge, I imagine. I mean, the Welsh fire job would have been, what, six weeks? Yeah. No, it is a different challenge. And you're absolutely spot on. I, I much prefer... It's, it's certainly more in my comfort zone to work over a longer period of time with a group of people. Uh, I've had four or five years now in T20 cricket, done over well over 100 games now, um, and, and really warmed to the, to the, to the product, to, to the format. I've really warmed to it. I just find that it's... From a coaching perspective, it really challenges your coaching. So I've had to learn a lot more about the quality of recruiting. I've had to learn a lot more about how you um, can use the analytics that are thrown at you to build competitive advantages over the opposition. Um, so it's been almost a kind of a new coaching space for me. And, um, you know, I've had, some, I've had a couple of tough years in, in India in the, in the IPL, but I had a great year with Hobart. I really enjoyed it. And then I've had a great year with the, with the Durban Heat. I really, really enjoyed it. So it's, it's, for me, it's challenged my coaching. Um, I think it is very tough to shift cultures in a short period of time. So, so there's, a, there's, a, there's a different methodology to coaching a team for eight weeks and in T20 cricket. And I think it's challenged my coaching and I've learned a lot through the journey. So I was really looking forward to the 100. We don't have a contract anymore, so I might not get off with the job next year. But... Uh, what I, what I really liked about it was that I was going to be working with other first-class coaches. So it'll be a good opportunity to learn from them. And then they have opportunity to work with Steve Smith. He was going to be our captain. Mitch Stark was in our team. And we had a lot of kind of older, more experienced players. Liam Plunkett was in our side. Ryan Tenderscotty, Colin Ingram. So some players I was really looking forward to working with. But, um, you know, hopefully it still comes about. Gary Kirsten, we're almost out of time. I need to ask you about the future. And it's difficult as... As, as journalists or, or as cricketers, um, passing comment or, or even making any kind of suggestion about COVID-19 and the coronavirus and, and the future of the game. 
Um, but um, I'm going to ask you anyway, because I'm sure you've been reading a lot about it. And, and, and you know, uh, I'm sure you, you have an opinion about the construction of biosecure environments and, and, and playing the game in a, in a biosecure bubble, as, as England are, are going to try and do against uh, the West Indies. Um, can cricket, quite say, can, can it carry on? It, it has to, but are you, are you reasonably optimistic? Um, I'm 50-50 on it. I mean, it's such a speculative opinion that I would have, you know. The one thing that just stands for me that feels absolutely weird is playing sport without anyone watching. <laughs> you know, and uh, that, is, that is just, it just absolutely doesn't make sense to me. So I understand economically the need, game needs to go on. And as I understand it, in these in bubbles that they're trying to create, there are going to be some people watching. Is that correct? Or no? Uh no media commentators a couple of security i mean no no actual no paying spectators at this stage okay. i just find it's you know the 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 atmosphere of a of a game is 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 so critical to the the integrity of it you know so it's going to be the performance really, of the players and the performance of the players i mean i watched a couple of those before the covid thing came out a couple of those football games where there was no one in the stadium i turned the tv off just said, like, it's, is this a training thing here? You know, <laughs> I think it's going to be very weird, and it's going to take a while for people to get used to. The one thing that, I don't know if you've experienced it, Neil, but uh, we've certainly in our household, because we are a sport-mad family, but is having no sport on TV on the weekend. It's been, like, quite bizarre. You, you, you know, you don't have that, like, relaxing time. And it's just, like, every now and again, I love to watch a rugby match or even a bit of a golf uh, tournament in the evening or, or something. I've always loved that. I've always been part of my DNA or how we operate as a family. But we've had to think of other things to do, which maybe is a good thing. I will say that. Um, but it's been quite weird. So, yeah, sport is going through a, a very challenging time at the moment, isn't it? And uh, um, I know that trying, everyone's trying to do everything to keep it alive economically. I mean, I've chatted to quite a few county players. And they just, they just, they don't even know where they're going. Although there's talk that they're going to start in August, I believe. But it's, uh, it's been weird for them, you know. Gary Kirsten, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much indeed for your time here on the Cricket Collective on Talksport Two. It's been, um, it's been fun. Hopefully, we'll be able to get together and uh, hit a small white ball around a golf course at some point uh, in the reasonably near future. That would be great. And thanks for having me. My sincere thanks to Gary Kirsten for giving up his time over the last hour here on the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2. But if you miss any of the show or wish to catch up, you can download the podcast from the following on feed, available on Apple Podcasts, Acast and Spotify. Thanks again for listening. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. And this is your gentle reminder that Barbados is the best place to be a cricket fan. With eight matches from the ICC Men's T20 Cricket World Cup Series taking place in Barbados this summer, including the final, you can experience the summer of a lifetime by booking today. Aside from immersing in world-class cricket in the sunshine, Barbados is the dream destination for all travel enthusiasts. It is where adventure meets paradise, the culinary capital of the Caribbean, and better still, the birthplace of rum. 
If you're keen to unite with cricket fans across the globe for what is set to be an unforgettable summer, then head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.